0: everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rokraut.
0: And today we have an Oscar Rewind for you all about an Academy Award winning and record-breaking director, William Wyler. We'll be going through some biographical info and some facts about him, going through his movies that won Best Picture In chronological order, those are Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben-Hur. And then finally, getting into some listener questions.
1: I didn't realize he was such a big name in Hollywood until I went through his history here and watched some of these movies. Yes, I had seen some of them before. You may be shocked about how I feel about them, but... I can't wait.
0: (laughs) That's what I was going to ask you was just like, what was your relationship to William Wyler before? Was there one? And like, how did you feel in general about this group of watches?
1: I don't think I really treated him any differently than any other director from the 40s, the 50s, because I didn't know he was like such a big Oscars superstar and record breaker. But about the movies, I was actually pretty positive about them all. I rewatched Mrs. Miniver and I could oddly see myself just watching this randomly.
0: <laughs> this makes me so happy, you have no idea. We'll get we'll get into it when I talk about this movie and Greer, but oh my god, that's so exciting to me. I love it. I did not expect this so thrills.
1: <laughs> I'm sure nobody did. But I think chronologically too as His movies progress, I found myself liking them more and more. So, we'll get into that as we talk about them. But, how did you feel about them? And, what was your relationship with Wyler before this pod?
0: I really like this group of films and I had seen them all before. I'll talk specifically about each one and my viewing experiences, like as we go through them. But, in general, I really love William Wyler. In a similar way to you, though, I suppose I never really thought of him as like my standout director from this period even though looking at his filmography some of his films are some of my favorites of all time and I think that I really like his style. He was able to make these like big movies because people were able to trust him because he made hits. And I think where that comes from is that he makes these really beautiful romantic, emotional films that move you. And I think that that's something that's always connected with the Academy, but it's something that when I think of this period, that's what works for me with these films. And he's also an actor's director. I love the performances that he gets out of his actors Mm -hmm. and that his actors love working with him. I think that's very evident in all three of these films and in his others that we're not going to talk about as much today.
1: So before we get too in-depth, I'm going to go over some background of William Wyler, his history, his wins at the Oscars, and then just a little bit more about him growing up and how he got into film. So like you mentioned at the end of the last pod, he was born July 1st, 1902, and died July 28th, 1981. His three Oscar wins were for the three movies we'll talk about today, Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben-Hur. But overall, he was nominated for Best Director 12 times, and 13 of his pictures were nominated for Best Picture. He holds the record for both here, and then he's tied for wins with Frank Capra with three, and only behind John Ford, who has four wins as director. But the other pictures he was nominated for director for were *Dodsworth*, Wuthering Heights, The Letter, The Little Foxes, The Heiress, Detective Story, Roman Holiday, Friendly Persuasion, and The Collector. And then for Roman Holiday and Friendly Persuasion, he was doubly nominated in Best Picture 2 as a producer. But he also directed the Best Documentary winner, The Fighting Lady, in 1944. And like you said about being an actor's director... I think it was really fascinating reading about actors who maybe didn't want to be in certain pictures because of either the grandness or just the commitment. Mm -hmm. And other people in the crew or other actors or friends were like, no, you have to do this. This is William Wyler. And I Mm -hmm. think that is like, that is the persona you want to have in any job is that you you want people to work with you. And they end up doing these roles, a lot of them winning awards. 14 actors won Oscars throughout his history.
0: That's wild, really. Like, you, we talk about directors now, I think, who you can count on maybe their actors getting nominated, but to have such a consistent track record of your actors winning is a mm-hmm. different story altogether.
1: Yeah, so Audrey Hepburn and Barbara Streisand both won their first Academy Awards working with him for Roman Holiday and then Funny Girl... And other actors he worked with include Laurence Olivier, Gary Cooper, Betty Davis. So he was born in Alsace, and his mother had introduced him to her cousin, Carl Lemley who just happened to own Universal Pictures when he was young. So like, what a connection to have in the family.
0: <laughs> Truly. I mean, it's a really big one to have. And I mean, I'm not complaining. Great. And I'm glad that he had that connection and could start making movies early.
1: So... In the 1920s, he worked in the swing gang at Universal, which is like crew doing last-minute changes to sets, moving things around. He ended up moving up to second assistant editor and then third assistant director before he became the youngest director on the Universal lot in 1925. And then he ended up actually directing Universal's first sound production, Hell's Heroes, in 1929. So he's making big moves very quickly here. He's not Mm -hmm. even 30. And then... In the mid-1930s he left Universal for Samuel Goldwyn and that's where he formed a partnership with the DP Greg Toland. They created this deep focus style that Greg later used in Citizen Kane so I think Mm -hmm. this is maybe another connection that I had never made or realized that people were still forming techniques and like Mm -hmm. doing experimental things with the camera so I think this was fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. And I think, you know, we still talk about today, these DPs who have relationships with directors, you'll see certain directors working Mm -hmm. with the same DPs over and over again. And I love thinking about in old Hollywood, this happening and Greg Toland, in particular, his voice and his vision and that visual style, I think, paired with the way that Wyler sees his actors and sees that connecting to their emotions is really powerful, especially in The Best Years of Our Lives. I think we'll we'll talk about that one very specifically of how the camera works in that mm-hmm. movie.
1: So then obviously, if you've seen Mrs. Miniver or The Best Years of Our Lives, you know that there's a heavy focus on the people's reactions and emotions towards the war. So this was mostly influenced because he was enlisted for World War II with John Huston and Frank Capra, fellow directors, in 1941. And then he served as major and lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Air Forces. And while he served, he filmed two documentaries which highlighted bomber aircrafts. And in the process, he like actually filmed when he was flying during bombing missions. So again, risking your life filming a movie is like another level.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't know this about him. And I have this book about the Oscars that has kind of a cheeky tone to it. And... <laughs> I really thought, okay, how can someone be doing this? How is this a real thing? But that was Weiler's commitment. And I think later on you do see how his attitude towards the war changed and how his experience in the war really affected the way that he made movies. When you're looking at the differences between... Mrs. Miniver and The Best Years of Our Lives.
1: So after he finished filming Mrs. Miniver, he was actually posted in the army. And this coincided with the Oscars date. So he actually wasn't at the ceremony because he was overseas serving. So fast forward to The Best Years of Our Lives winning at the Oscars. The movie was apparently supposed to be billed as a, quote, William Wyler production, and it wasn't. So he left Goldwyn, formed his own company, Liberty Pictures, with Frank Capra and George Stevens. And after this, after 10 years working together, him and Goldwyn were no longer on speaking terms. Big yikes. Yikes.
0: Also Also put a pin in that about Frank Capra and William Wyler, because they will come back in competition when we talk about the best years of our lives. So... (laughs) have some takes about that. We'll see. (laughs) Because I think they are similar in a way. They make emotionally rousing films, Mm -hmm. but execute them very differently and were viewed by the public at the time very differently.
1: Okay. Yeah. Go into that more later. I want to hear about this. The last little history bit that I have is that in 1962, he became director for 20th Century Fox. And he also holds the title for the most consecutive Best Picture nominations with seven years running. Which, That's again, is, yeah, we yeah, don't see that.
0: We really don't. And, you know, I think unless you really pay attention to classic film, William Wyler is a name that I feel like if you just if you just went up to someone on the street, I don't advise doing this, but if you were like, who was a really popular old Hollywood director, I don't think William Wyler is like the first name that comes to your head, but William Wyler was one of the most successful ones
1: that reminds me of this video I just saw on Twitter it's an old video of Billy Eichner's show where he goes Uh to people on the street and it's the woman he goes up to her and he's like do you know La La Land she's like get out of my face (laughs) she's like you did this to the wrong person I don't know who you are and she doesn't know who Emma Stone or Ryan Gosling are it's like oh my god let alone William Wyler Like (laughs) Like
0: I said, I don't advise doing that, but if you did, I doubt William Wyler would be mentioned. Okay, so let's get started with Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver came out in 1942. IMDb description here, a British family struggles to survive the first months of World War II. This movie stars Greer Garson, Walter Pidgeon, Teresa Wright, and Henry Travers. It won six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Greer Garson, Best Supporting Actress for Teresa Wright, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography, Black and White. It had six other nominations, including Best Actor for Walter Pidgeon, Supporting Actor for Henry Travers, Supporting Actress for Dame May Whitty, Best Sound Recording, Best Film Editing, and Effects Special Effects. I i am so excited that you didn't hate it because I I didn't know what you would think of this. But I think talk more about like how you felt about this movie. What did you like? What was your experience watching it?
1: I think the propaganda of it all was almost too much, but to a funny extent, like Mm -hmm. it obviously had its purpose. And I think it's real world impact and connection was greater than anything I would ever have expected from a movie. And I think during my viewing, the few things I really noticed about Wyler were that he really features his actors and that his sets are really grand. There's so much detail, obviously the final shot going through the bombed church and then zooming through the dilapidated roof. I think, you know, that's just a snapshot of what he captures in his movies. So like I said earlier, I think I liked the later films more. But I wasn't thrown off by the acting here, like by Greer Garson's acting.
0: Okay. I was a little concerned about that, but I'm glad, I'm glad it wasn't too distracting.
1: I mean, there are parts like when she finds the German pilot, and it just doesn't make sense why she doesn't get away. But I think like <laughs> I can look past these slight flaws in an otherwise great story.
0: Or like how that happens on the same day as Dunkirk. Like it's all <laughs> happening at once. <laughs> yeah. I just always think that's funny that all of these really significant events happen on the same day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I mean, again, it's a propaganda film. It works.
1: And how do you feel about Mrs. Miniver as a best picture winner or just generally about the movie?
0: We're going to go back into the archives here of my life a little bit. I had to actually consult my mom about this because I really couldn't remember like how young I was. And this is going to sound so strange, but when I was about, I think it was when I turned 10, I was able to start checking out videos from the library. So I decided to watch all these old movies, again no idea why other than that, you know, I kind of grew up around it. But in particular, I really attached to Greer Garson. So I watched, oh my gosh, like Goodbye Mr. Chips, Mrs. Miniver, Random Harvest, Her Pride and Prejudice, like so many of her movies. Again, I have no explanation for why I did this, but there was something like so charismatic and charming about her that Connected with me as a child, which is again so strange. But Mrs. Miniver in particular, the most interesting things to unpack from it are definitely like how it functions as a propaganda film and what was going on mm-hmm. in the industry, like er- in the early 40s in World War II, and how screenwriters and studio heads were responding and thinking about the types of stories that they would make. And that's what stands out to me now. But even still, when I rewatched it, and I hadn't rewatched it in a while. I was like okay I I get it the -the over-the-top acting the like stiff upper lip British thing that she's doing even how she gets like so excited about buying that hat I think when I was a kid I loved that because like that's not the acting I was seeing in like my Disney movies I was watching and there was just something so compelling about her and I certainly have other actresses who I had similar experiences with like Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis of course but they're really popular. And I think that I am excited to talk about Mrs. Miniver because I feel like a lot of people don't know Greer Garson, even though she was like the number one box office draw of the 40s. She was a major, major Hmm. star at MGM. All of this to say, I think this is an inevitable Best Picture winner and Best Actress win. And I think it's a fascinating historical document.
1: So we can talk about the propaganda side of things. When the movie opens... There's another scroll.
0: <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm.
1: It goes, Summer of 1939, when the sun shone down in a happy, careless people. And that line to me was like, oh boy, here we go. This <laughs> is like spelling it out for us mm-hmm. <laughs> who worked and played in that happy, easygoing England that was so soon to be fighting for life itself. I mm-hmm. was like, oh wow, this is drama.
0: Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the film, what's so odd, I think when you're first watching it, is that it begins with Kay Miniver Greer wanting to buy this hat, which it is a really beautiful hat, but the way she reacts to this hat is hilarious. It is so over the top. She acts like she is like seeing her newborn child for the first time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you have Clem Miniver, played by Walter Pidgeon, her husband, who's like trying to hide from her that he's buying a new car. Mm-hmm. And it's just like all about these purchases they're making. And the family is described as middle class, but like they're well off. No, <laughs> They have a really nice house. They're buying things that are kind of luxury purchases. Mm-hmm. And the movie starts that way. It's like he's establishing that this family really has a perfect life and you're Mm -hmm. like okay the war here comes the war and it just gets started too that the people who would be watching this movie and ultimately voting for oscars they probably had similar situations at the beginning of the war where that's what they had to worry about was like hiding a purchase from their spouse
1: well and then they go into this big conversation of money and clem goes What's the use of having a little money if you can't be reckless with it? Throw it away on something you really want. And yeah, I think someone who's saying this, this is not something I've ever said. And then you mentioning the beginning of the movie when she's buying this hat. I think Weiler opening the movie on this really wide shot of this bustling town. Mm -hmm. There's so much going on. There's so many background actors in the frame he could have started the movie in the shop where she's buying the hat and just focused on that. But he adds these huge sets and productions. And I think that adds a lot to the movie. And I appreciated that. So what were some of your other favorite scenes or moments from the movie?
0: I think that the scenes that I really like are actually the ones with Greer and Dame Mae who, which again, great, great name. <laughs> um, when they're interacting, so they have two conflicts that I think Weiler puts into this story to illuminate the differences between the different socioeconomic statuses in Britain at the time. And the first of these conflicts is that there's this rose competition every year, which is so British. It's like very Downton Abbey. And Lady Belden's rose mm-hmm. always wins. It's a rigged competition, basically and just exists for her to kind of show her status. And this year, the station master, played by Henry Travers, is entering a rose that's really beautiful that he, of course, has named after Mrs. Miniver, as he thinks she's just like so beautiful and nice, which she is, but it's just funny. So Greer in this scene is trying to convince Lady Belden not to rig the competition and. I think that that scene really works. I also think the scene when she is talking to Lady Belden about her son, Vin, who has fallen in love with Carol, who's Lady Belden's granddaughter, Teresa Wright. Of course, Lady Belden, you know, doesn't want them to get married because of their status differences. But in this scene, I love how, like, shrewd Kay is she's like I've done history on your family and you know kind of figures her out and I love those scenes I think with them I feel like those are the strongest aspects of the movie as opposed to Mm -hmm. the scene for example when Greer meets the Nazi as exciting Mm -hmm. as that can be at times I don't think it's as effective as the sort of domestic drama I think that's where Wyler really shines what about you
1: Apart from the scenes in the church, which I think are another great production, and this is the setting where like key moments happen, where the vicar comes up, stops the mass, and tells everybody that Britain is now at war with Germany, mm-hmm. and you all have more important things to do, and ends the mass. Um, and then at the very end, obviously, is when he gives this rousing speech, and that's when the movie ends. But I think in the household... So the Minivers are at the dinner table, and Toby asks,
0: Are you going to marry Carol?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Toby asks him that, and I think that whole scene is very dramatic (laughs) and unrealistic, but it's funny, it plays well, it's lighthearted, and solidify this relationship, which from here on, I was convinced Vin was going to die. I knew something bad was going to happen. Uh Uh-huh it just was the other way around. So it's almost a way that he breaks his movie up from all of the drama from the war and keeping things lighthearted and bringing romance into the movie. And we know that audiences love this movie. So this is something that really worked.
0: Yeah. Like in a similar way to the moments between Kay and Lady Belden, I feel that that's where Wyler does his best work. He is so good at depicting relationships Especially romantic ones. I think in the case of Vin and Carol, uh, looking at Clem and Kay, like they have some funny, lighthearted moments in there. I think, too, I mean, Walter Pigeon and Greer Garson worked together in nine movies. They were often playing husband and wife, so I feel like mm-hmm. that comes really naturally to them. I could totally see that working, but I think there's a lot of humor in those moments, and I love after. gets home and the maid is like, "We don't have ham. You gave it to the German pilot." And he's like, "What German pilot?" Totally like doesn't (laughs) think that that's something she could handle, but of course, like she does. And how she just acts like it's nothing, I think is so funny. Mm -hmm. I think let's talk about performances and trivia for listeners. If you don't know this, this is a bombshell fact. If you haven't seen Mrs. Miniver yet. Like, skip ahead, because this fact will definitely influence the way that you watch the movie. But Greer Garson Mm -hmm. ended up marrying Richard Ney, the actor who plays Vin, her son, which is crazy. I mean, it's one of just the funniest (laughs) things. She was 12 years older than him. They got married, like, shortly after filming completed, and Louis B. Mayer wanted them to hide it, obviously, because he thought it would be bad press. In particular, not only is it a mother marrying her son in the movie, it's the age difference at the time. And I think it's, I mean, it's a little absurd. It's like Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde. Like, that's the age difference pretty much there. In the 40s, 12 years and the woman being that much older was a big deal. But, like, good for them. Whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely in the movie when there are scenes with all three of them, And there's a shot when they're on the banister and they walk down the stairs, but Vin goes, I sort of don't know which way to turn. And he looks at both women and that is like, oh my God, (laughs) the real world, even though, I mean, maybe they were secretly together on set and like, that's how they sparked this relationship, but they weren't married yet. And I think looking back, that is kind of cringe. (laughs) It's just so funny.
0: (laughs) yeah so he asked her out during filming okay um, i read and they started dating secretly while they were filming and there are some scenes like the one you mentioned i always think of the one when they go pick him up at the train station when he's coming back from oxford Mm -hmm. the way that the car is set up is so bizarre they're both (laughs) sitting in the back seat everyone else is in the front seat And they are just like looking at each other in a way that like mothers hopefully do not look at sons (laughs) is and vice versa. It was, it's a lot. Another great fact about her is that she has the record for the longest speech in Oscar history. This is legendary. It's a little over five minutes. She quoted Alice in Wonderland. She (laughs) thanked the doctor who birthed her. Like she really went for it that year was similar to this past year at the Oscars where they actually ended on the acting awards. Best Picture came earlier in the night Mm -hmm. and Best Actress was the final award. So imagine, you know, this year we complained about how it was like, (laughs) and Best Actor goes to Anthony Hopkins, cut to black. Not this year. I mean, everyone knew it was Greer, but she was last. The Oscars started at 9.30. It was after midnight, and they did not end until after 1 o'clock in the morning. So people were obviously very frustrated by her, but she was like, I won. I'm going to talk for as long as I want.
1: And this is when they established the cue to the orchestra.
0: Well, apparently, too, Bob Hope said multiple times, next year it's going to be different. Like People joked about this in Hollywood for a long time about her speech, and she got to the point where she was kind of like, okay, I'm tired of this now. (laughs) Stop doing this. (laughs)
1: So some other trivia about the movie. It was the first film to receive five acting nominations at the Academy Awards.
0: Yeah, five. I mean, if you think about it, you had Best Actress, Best Actor, Supporting Actor, and then two in Supporting Mm -hmm. Actress. That's a big deal. Yeah. All very popular people at the time.
1: And then this was also the first film with a plotline centered around World War II to win an Oscar for Best Picture. I mean, this was during World War II. So I think that also is pretty outstanding, knowing that the war was going on. It's kind of like The Great Dictator coming out in
0: 1940. I think to add on to the Oscar stuff here... So Greer, she holds an Oscar record of being nominated for an acting Oscar for five consecutive years. The only other person to have done that is Betty Davis to be nominated five years in a row. Um, She won for this, for Mrs. Miniver. It was right in the middle of that. But I also recommend Random Harvest, the other movie that came out this year, which is... A romantic melodrama with an amnesia plot. So it is very 1940s, but I think has a great performance from Ronald Coleman, who's her, her co-star in the movie. But of course, like she couldn't be nominated for both.
1: So Mrs. Miniver was also the highest grossing movie of 1942. And thinking that this could be, you know, now we have Marvel or huge blockbusters, also crazy. Uh-huh. And from this stemmed a sequel in 1950 with Garson and Pigeon again. But this was their most costly flop of 1950. So did not work for them.
0: (laughs) Yes, I've seen it. Um, Another one I got from the library. And they also recast Richard Nay, of course, because he and Greer were divorced by by that time. So and he also couldn't play her son. That would be I mean, maybe more people would have gone to see it because it would have been so scandalous. But yeah, it's it's really bad. Don't recommend.
1: And you mentioned Lady Belden, the whole Rose thing being very Downton Abbey. There's an episode in Downton Abbey, I think in season one, that copies the scene of Violet Crawley, who's played by Maggie Smith, giving her award away at a flower show.
0: Oh my God, that's probably, I think I knew that in the back of my head and forgot about that. That's, I love that. Yeah, let's get into talking about the propaganda here, because Mm -hmm. I think it's important to think about the historical context and what was happening with the studios at the time, and Germany had a really big market for them, and they didn't want to interfere with German Mm. sales. So one thing I read um, from film critic David Thompson, he said that Hollywood was caught in a very nasty situation, it did not want war for the simple reason that war would interfere with its European sales. And they played a very two-faced game until it was clear that the war was inevitable. And then additionally, if you think about how many people in Hollywood were Jewish, that's another layer to this. And Ben Erwand, who wrote the collaboration, he said, screenwriters, many of whom were Jewish, would plead with studio heads to make anti-Nazi films and to make films about what Hitler was doing to Jews in Germany but the problem was that in the 1930s the studios were essentially controlled by six or seven individuals who decided what made it onto the screen and the screenwriters had very little power but then if you think about like the early years of world war 2 studios were putting out films that attempted to show support for the allies but mm-hmm. that weren't overtly anti-nazi when Mrs. Miniver was in like pre-production, so when Weiler was first asked to direct, the U.S. hadn't taken sides yet, even, and no one knew that it would. So no one kind of knew what was coming, mm-hmm. and so this movie started at a really odd time. Then, as production continues, Louis B. Mayer really wanted Weiler to tone down Mrs. Miniver. He thought it was too aggressive and to Mm anti-Nazi. But then after Pearl Harbor, everything changed. And that's when you get Greer slapping the Nazi. Like that was able to stay in because of Pearl Harbor. And then around that time, overtly anti-Nazi movies grew, and we were getting more of them. Mm. Wow. And then I think thinking too about this movie as a propaganda artifact... The Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, who we, Mm -hmm. you know, you think about that time making these propaganda pictures. He said that Mrs. Miniver, quote, shows the destiny of a family during the current war and its refined, powerful, propagandistic tendency has up to now only been dreamed of. There's not a single angry word spoken against Germany. Nevertheless, the anti-German tendency is perfectly accomplished. So that's really scary. That is (laughs) like him being like, I want to make a movie like this, that's yeah, like, pretty frightening.
1: And then on the other side of things, so Churchill saw the movie and said, Mrs. Miniver is propaganda worth 100 battleships. And FDR loved the speech at the end so much that he had it broadcast over radios, he had it printed, it was in Time and Look magazines, and there were copies of it dropped over Europe. And while the what would become the MPAA was really battling with its nature. And like you said, being anti-German, they really wanted to get it out, especially FDR. So the fact that this is reaching the presidency, you know, the the highest government officials of multiple countries is really next level.
0: It is. And also, you know, thinking about release and timing, Mrs. Miniver came out the same day as Winston Churchill's Never Surrender speech. So that speech that's at the end of Dunkirk where you just weep, (laughs) like when they're like, we shall fight on the beaches, and you're just like sobbing. Like that came out the same day as this. So you can imagine just that national pride that's happening at that time. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone as charismatic and as popular as Greer Garson going through this That was so important to people at the time, I think, to be able to see someone who they love and they feel like they Mm -hmm. know going through that and overcoming it and, you know, having courage and keeping your family together. And ultimately, it has a very Oscar y message, which is like, Mm -hmm. if you're a good moral person, you're going to succeed. Yep. And, i mean that gets a little sticky of course like it always does but it really i mean that's it makes sense why it won best picture and why it did so well at the box Mm -hmm. office with all these things just coalescing at the perfect time
1: so do you think anything was snubbed from the movie
0: i was kind of surprised that it didn't get an art direction black and white nomination because i feel like the sets are very intricate and striking in particular i just love their house Mm -hmm. i want to live in it (laughs) what about you
1: Yeah, I think in this kind of movie, specifically, cinematography and art direction go really well together. And it is surprising that, yes, cinematography was there. But like I mentioned, the sets were so detailed and intricate. Like, how was that not nominated? I totally agree.
0: And how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie?
1: I could either see them, like, blowing past it and not giving it much, but I don't think it would be a number one box office hit, best picture winner kind of movie. What do you think?
0: I feel the same way. It's hard because I'm trying to think of, I guess, who today they would have playing a character like Mrs. Miniver because I think that the impulse today would be to make it look less rosy and to make it look far grittier about what she was going through. And, you know... Like how she felt about her husband being away and her doing all of this. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think she would be this perfect woman. So I'm trying to envision even who would play that part today, and I, I cannot think of another actress. Maybe Kate Winslet, like someone like that. But even still, I just I can't really see this this type of picture coming to fruition in the same way. I
1: like Vera Farmiga, not Frances McDormand.
0: Vera though is strange. See, so Fran actually popped into my head as like, if they changed the role to be, you know, more about this, like this middle-class mother, but like imagining Fran going to like buy a hat is hilarious. Like she or having a rose named after her. Oh my God. She would want like a weed named after her instead. Oh, you know who would totally do it actually? Jessica Chastain. And maybe that's because Greer has red hair, and that's what I'm picturing, but I can totally see her doing it.
1: That's a great one.
0: And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
1: I think it would be for cinematography. What about you?
0: I have to do Best Actress for Greer Garson. I feel like the performance really holds the movie down, and without it... I mean, it's called Mrs. Miniver. She's Mm -hmm. the titular character, so...
1: And this was her only win out of seven nominations, so yeah, without this... She may not have been a, an Oscar winner, which is crazy.
0: Yeah. This was inevitable, though. Like, there was just no way she was losing mm-hmm. this.
1: So onto The Best Years of Our Lives, which came out in 1946. The IMDb description, three World War II veterans return home to small-town America to discover that they and their families have been irreparably changed. It stars Myrna Loy, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Harold Russell, and Kathy O'Donnell. It won eight Oscars, including Picture, Director, Lead Actor for March, Supporting Actor for Russell, Screenplay, Film Editing, Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, and then an Honorary Special Award for Russell. The reasoning here, which we will explain again, was for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance, and it had one other nomination for Sound Recording. I think this is a great companion piece to Mrs. Miniver. How do you feel about this movie?
0: This is probably in my top 15 favorite Best Picture winners of all time.
1: Okay, wow.
0: I love this movie so much. It's like one of my favorite movies from the period. It's probably my favorite William Wyler movie. I think it's his masterpiece. It shocks me every time I watch it that it was made in 1946. Mm -hmm. I don't know how something this biting about the U.S. and about the government's response to the war and about soldiers returning home, how that got through Samuel Goldwyn, how William Wyler got away with making this movie, and how audiences loved it so much. I mean, it makes sense, but it was the second most successful movie after Gone with the Wind when it Mm -hmm. came out. So audience has definitely craved that, and I do think that what William Wyler created in Mrs. Miniver, as we talked about, was relatively extreme propaganda, and here what we have is someone who I think has come away from the war and has a really specific understanding of what war does to people and a clear vision of how to communicate that, and I love the performances. I adore like the cinematography, the writing. I think it's amazing. So I was very happy to revisit this. It was one of my favorites.
1: That's incredible. I had seen this before, but I don't think I fully understood the concept of how tragic it was for these men to come back. And I think Weiler's commentary, his criticism here is so pointed. He had said previously about Mrs. Miniver that that film only scratched the surface of war. It was incomplete. So I think what he was saying here, he got to flesh out certain things that maybe he didn't before. Like when Fred goes into his abandoned plane that he found, feeling that sense of loss and that nostalgia for the best years of our lives. So I think even that scene alone is a good snapshot of what Weiler is saying here.
0: That's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I do want to come back to that. I think that what I also love about it is that... So in Mrs. Miniver, you have Kay Miniver, who is this literally perfect woman. She is beautiful. She's kind. Everyone loves her. She slaps a Nazi. Like Everything she does (laughs) is great. And here what we have, we have real people who have experienced real suffering and who come back and make mistakes and are angry and who have just these intense emotions because of their experience. And I think that the way that Weiler and Sherwood, the screenwriter, setting it up by having these three men who are from different branches of service, different economic backgrounds, different ranks come back and experience life so differently is really ingenious and works really well as a plot structure because you can i think as a viewer at the time i'm sure each audience member could identify with one of those men at least mm-hmm. whether that's themselves and their own experience or it was a family member or a neighbor the war was affecting everyone but by setting the plot up in this way around these three different characters and what they're experiencing right you have Al who comes back and gets a promotion at his job, but is suffering through alcoholism. He wants to go out all night. And then you have Fred who, you know, has all this experience in the military, but who can't get a job anywhere. He has to return to being a soda jerk and then dealing with his wife, who he had just married before. And then of course you have Homer who loses his hands. And that in particular is very emotional and challenging to watch, especially because I think what Weiler does there that's really unique that I didn't expect when I watched it was that He's not upset about losing his hands. That's not why he's complaining or that's not why he has this pain in his eyes. It's because he's worried about how everyone else feels about that. He's worried about how his family reacts to that and how the woman who he loves and is supposed to marry, how she might react to that. And that to me is just, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And I love watching this movie because I think... Ultimately, it's a domestic drama, which I really love, and it's about relationships, and I think it's just, it's really poignant and beautiful.
1: And I think Weiler navigates these potentially overemotional plot devices where, like you mentioned, he could have had Homer being really depressed and down about losing his hands and not being able to function as a, a normal citizen anymore, but he empowers Homer, and it's more about being self-conscious because everybody around him doesn't know how to act. So I think things like that proves that Weiler is this really smart filmmaker.
0: And I think while we're on Homer, casting Harold Russell, who was a non-professional actor, we talked a lot about this this year with Nomadland and non-professional actors and what that can bring to your film, but Harold Russell, who was an actual veteran who lost his hands, Weiler discovered him through a training video, that is so ahead of its time especially <laughs> for films made in america like europeans were doing that already mm-hmm. but in america filmmakers weren't making movies with non-professional actors to give their story a more authentic feel here that's what he does right it's he wanted it to feel more like a documentary mm-hmm. and he was known as 40 Take Weiler. He was a big perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And I think you can really see that in this movie, too, is that he wanted it to feel like very, very authentic, as opposed to Mrs. Miniver, which is just a straight-up propaganda picture.
1: <laughs> but also way more polished, too. And along with wanting it to have that documentary feel, Weiler insisted that the entire crew be World War II veterans. So the fact that this is coming out probably less than a year after the war ends, he's having all these veterans work on this picture. I mean, there has to be some catharsis in there and some therapeutic Mm -hmm. element for them to see this playing out so soon afterwards.
0: Like, it makes me want to cry thinking about it. It's so just, like, moving to me that he did Mm -hmm. this, and he, like, employed all these veterans and had them experience that kind of catharsis that I'm sure was there. and. William Wyler, right after he left the service, he lost his hearing pretty badly, Mm -hmm. like was almost completely deaf. And Greg Toland rigged up a system for him so that he could hear the actors well enough to direct them. And again, like get those authentic performances and hear the picture Mm -hmm. as it was. So I love that. I love that there was just this collaboration among them after the war.
1: And you mentioned liking the airplane graveyard scene. So what other scenes or characters or moments did you really like from this movie?
0: So we'll definitely get to this, I think, when we talk about snubs. But I love the women in this movie also, in particular Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright. But the scenes that I always think of that I really love, in addition to the airplane graveyard scene with Dana Andrews, the first one is when Al returns home. And you get the shot of the door. Oh, my God. I just, like, start weeping when he's, like, standing outside of the door. And then he opens it, and you see Myrna and, like, her face when she realizes what's happening and that he's home. Oh, my God. It's so overwhelming. I love how he blocks his actors, how it's shot. The other scene that I love, and I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I love, love, love the wedding scene at the end. And again, how the actors are set up, and what's in the foreground, what's in the background, and you, at first, don't really know, like, where to look, and what to pay attention to, but it's just, again, another really emotional, Mm -hmm. moving scene, and an amazing way to end the film. I love it.
1: I feel like I'm gonna tear up. I love that shot of Wilma at the wedding, but I also loved the opening scene when Al comes home. The editing is great and also, you know, mm-hmm. seeing the realizations on their faces. And then that moment, too, of them seeing each other from across this long hallway, that was real. That happened to Weiler and his wife, Margaret. So he took that from when he returned from the war, uh, which adds another level to it.
0: Oh, I really am going to cry. <laughs> it's, it's, it really is a lot. If you're one of those people who, like military coming home videos or the thing that makes you cry, like this movie is for you.
1: And I will say, I also really liked Peggy.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like I identify with her. (laughs) Not that I want to admit that.
1: (laughs) And that's exactly why she's a little crazy, like it's fine, but some of her lines are just so out there. She meets Fred. And then they start to like each other or she likes him. And she goes, I'm going to break that marriage up. She like wakes up and goes <laughs> to tell her parents. as so I was like, in what world is anybody going to their parents and saying this statement?
0: <laughs> yes, that was part of it. It was like, it's one thing to think that or to like tell your yeah. friend that, but to be so open with your parents about that. Like, I love him. I'm going to break this marriage up. is <laughs> hilarious.
1: And then after she realizes it's not going to work, she goes... It's the end of my career as a homewrecker. (laughs) Maybe one of my favorite lines from any of the Best Picture nominees that we've discussed.
0: (laughs) She's so great. And I think that performance wise, I do really like her in this. I think that she she feels like such a real character. And I know that's like cliche to say, but she just feels so like actualized and I also feel that her conversation, the scene when she's talking to Al, Frederick March, and I feel like that is such a real father-daughter relationship Mm -hmm. and conversation. I was like, oh, wow, he's really good, really good in this scene. And Myrna Loy, too, as her mom. I mean, it's just their family dynamic. I feel like they have chemistry. They're a very believable Mm -hmm. family. I do think it's kind of strange, just jumping on this really quick, that the brother just kind of... At the beginning, I always think he has a bigger role, but he really just like eats his toast and is going to high school and then just kind of is irrelevant <laughs> for the movie.
1: Yeah, I can't even recall his character. Yeah,
0: he... he's like there at the beginning and then in a random scene when he's like running late for school, and that's pretty yeah, much it. oh my
1: gosh, wow. <laughs> that's crazy. They totally phased him out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Any other scenes or performances that you really liked?
1: I think even the introductory scene where mm-hmm. they're being transported home i think some of the shots i don't know if this was new for the time but like flying from the plane and seeing below and then in the taxi you can see that in the rearview mirror they used this technique i don't know he like cut in film for the rearview mirror and it was of the three actors in the back seat and i think that was in a way blocking the scene and being inside this car and using a wide angle and being able to show everything going on.
0: I like that too. And I like how he uses really tight spaces a lot, I think, to feel that even though they're home, how that can feel Mm -hmm. probably claustrophobic to them because it's just such a foreign experience now. They've been away for so long. And again, I think he reinforces that when nobody really wants to get out of the car. They're really scared to actually approach the door and to go home. Which, again, just, it's a great way to open the film. Mm -hmm. You get really attached to the characters, and you want to see what happens next for them. Quickly, just touching again on the airplane graveyard scene, I think that is my favorite scene, besides when Al arrives home, just how it's shot, and the way that they play with the sound design. All of a sudden, even though this is an airplane graveyard, they crank up the sound. You're experiencing Fred's PTSD, which they didn't really call it at the time yet, but Mm -hmm his memories of the war and him climbing into that plane and what that would have felt like for him and you know his new life and I love how Weiler uses such technical elements to do that when there's barely any dialogue like it's just mm-hmm. him walking and him sitting in the plane but you you get it because of Greg Tolan's cinematography and because of the sound design which I, I really really like
1: so some Oscar trivia this was the first film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, BAFTA and Golden Globe. Kind of surprising.
0: And I feel like precursors back then like weren't really a thing. It's always weird when we do these I think like old Hollywood films because when we think of precursors today and predicting, it's very different than how it was back then, but this film really was, mm-hmm. I think just such a phenomenon that it makes sense that it got everything and that it was pretty much just a runaway best picture winner. I mean, the yearling was that year too. And same with It's a Wonderful Life, but It's a Wonderful Life was a box office bomb. And the yearling was not close, really, to this one.
1: And then another really fun fact, I mentioned in the beginning what Oscars this movie won. And Harold Russell, he won the Supporting Actor Oscar and the Honorary Award. Because the Academy wasn't sure if he was going to win the Supporting Actor Award, they wanted to give him the Honorary Award just in case. And then he ended up winning both. So he's the only actor ever to win two Oscars for the same role.
0: I love that fact. And did you know that he also is the reason why the Academy had to put a clause in their rules that you cannot sell your Oscar? (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) What was he like? I have two. I don't need one.
0: He sold his Oscar. (laughs) for $60,500 at an auction. He said it was to help his wife who was sick. Apparently they went on a cruise instead and that was debunked. <laughs> but the wow. Academy at the time like tried to stop the sale from happening and they like wrote him a letter saying that they would give him an interest-free loan in exchange for the Oscar until he could repay it because they didn't want it to be sold, but it was sold. Oh gosh. Wow. <laughs> Very odd if you think about
1: it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, why do you not want an Oscar in your home or wherever they put it? Right. I, I don't understand.
0: Yeah. I guess, what do you think about Frederick March being the lone winner from this movie? This is stepping a little bit on our snubs conversation, but mm. I find it odd that he was the winner as opposed to Dana Andrews, who I feel is the lead. I mean, I guess they're both co-leads, kind of. They, I would put them both mm-hmm. in Best Actor, but Dana Andrews didn't even get nominated, but he was the standout performance for me instead of Frederick March.
1: Do you think Homer or Harold is supporting them, or do you think it's a three-male co-lead film?
0: I am tempted to say three-male co-lead
1: Mm -hmm. I think they're pretty equally
0: represented. And you think of it as three stories. I mean, I get why he won supporting, especially because at the time, lead actor was really reserved for the box office draws. The really popular actors and supporting was for character actors or newcomers. So I get that. But I also think part of the reason why I'm salty about Frederick March and why I've never liked this win is because he beat Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life.
1: Oh, well...
0: I think that's what it is.
1: Yeah, I get that. Wait, none of the women were nominated.
0: I know. I didn't
1: realize that. I know. Wow.
0: I hate that, especially because I don't understand Teresa Wright's Mrs. Miniver win. That performance is kind of dull (laughs) to me. Like, there's just nothing really there. So much so that... I saw Mrs. Miniver before I had seen this one and when I saw Teresa Wright in The Best Years of Our Lives I was kind of like oh no like not her like she's so boring just not not for me but she's great in this movie like I really like this Mm -hmm. character and this performance so I wish that this would have been her win instead of Mrs. Miniver if she was going to win an Oscar.
1: She's doing so much more here Mm -hmm. and maybe it's a little inflated but I liked it. Yeah. I don't think it's as big as Greg Garson no. from Mrs. <laughs> Miniver, but. And then Myrna Loy was the biggest actress at that time. Yes. And that's why she was top billed. So the fact that she wasn't even nominated for even supporting actress, I would allow.
0: Yeah. I think she's great in this movie. And she Mm -hmm. was never nominated for an Oscar. She was like the early Donald Sutherland, like even more so. It's just like, how does this person (laughs) not get nominated for an Oscar? I love her in The Thin Man. Oh my God. That movie's great. But I get that it's a very, I think, like male centered story around these three veterans. But I think that the women have a lot to do in the movie. And they Mm -hmm. were, and especially Myrna Lloyd was so big at the time that it is weird. I think that she wasn't there
1: and then Kathy O'Donnell who played Wilma married William Wyler's older brother a couple years after this movie so like I mentioned before Goldwyn and Wyler got at it and their friendship was severed mm-hmm. so Goldwyn was so upset about Kathy O'Donnell being connected to the Wyler family now that he canceled her contract
0: oh my god I did not yeah. know that wow
1: And this was the time of actors being tied to studios Mm -hmm. and only working for them. So she was out, Mm -hmm. which is crazy.
0: That's a huge deal at the time, because if you were not tied to a studio, not only was it harder to get work, it was nearly impossible to win awards. It was very, very hard to win awards. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Barbara Stanwyck at the top of this episode as being one of my favorites from the time. I think that's why she never won an Oscar either, and you know why someone like Greer Garson, who was this MGM darling, was able to come in and win and get nominated so many times. So, yeah, the way actors were tied to specific studios at the time is definitely a wrinkle and a really important thing to consider when you're thinking about this time period in Hollywood. One thing that I also love about this movie is how it uses... I think we both love Weiler also for the production design and for the sets and how everything looked, but I love how he uses like traditional Americana elements to show both what life was like before the war and that kind of wholesome aesthetic, but also in a more insidious way. Showing how the world has changed, I think that's a really compelling thing that he does. Sticking Dana Andrews behind that counter, making him make Sundays again, just looks completely different than it would before the war. And you mm-hmm. know, having it take place in the Midwest in this fictional Boone City, it was actually modeled after Cincinnati, Ohio. So anytime there is an Ohio connection, wow. we have to mention it.
1: Yeah, and they mentioned Cleveland in the very beginning mm-hmm. too. So there is a lot, a lot of Ohio going on.
0: We touched on this a little bit, but who or what do you think was snubbed here, if anything?
1: Well, I guess piggybacking off of what I said earlier, let's nominate all the women Kathy O'Donnell, Teresa Wright, Myrna Loy.
0: I was going to ask you, too. I forgot about this. Did you like Virginia Mayo as Fred's wife?
1: <laughs> I didn't not like her. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, she does a good job with the character who's very unlikable. I don't think she would have gotten a nomination regardless. Mm-hmm but I do think she was good, yeah.
0: I, th- I'm, I felt the same way. She kind of reminded me a little bit of Violet Bick from It's a Wonderful Life. Like, it felt kind of similar, but at the same time, I think, again, connecting it to It's a Wonderful Life, I wanted Gloria Graham, but that was too small <laughs> of a part
1: for her. And what do you think was snubbed from the movie?
0: I think in addition to the women and Dana Andrews, I think it's crazy cinematography wasn't nominated. Like no nomination here for Greg Toland, this movie's so well shot. It's so innovative. Mm -hmm. I feel like there wasn't much like it at the time that looked like this. It looks, it looks new. And even with these like more classical elements thrown in, you can tell that you're watching a story that actually uses the cinematography as a key storytelling element. In addition to just making it look beautiful.
1: There were only two nominees that year for cinematography.
0: That is so strange. What were the there nominees? There must have been an
1: odd rule. Yeah. It was Anna and the King of Siam and the Green Years.
0: No. that's That doesn't make any sense. No, that's really weird.
1: I think especially from the wedding scene that you mentioned, there's a shot where the wedding's over and everyone goes to crowd around Wilma and Homer, but the frame is designed that this is happening in one half of the frame. And then in the left half, there's Peggy standing in the back. Everything is in focus. And Fred is looking at her the entire time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they lock eyes. And that's just like, I feel like I have goosebumps. Me too. It's just... I,
0: I do right now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like, yes, this wedding is happening, but the emotions of what these two characters are feeling are probably just as strong.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the best shots in the whole movie. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a perfect way to end it.
1: So then how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie?
0: I think it would still be well received. I think that all of his movies just, they hit your heart. They have that emotional center to them. And I think the way that it's structured, again, around these three characters, where you can connect to any of them, really works. I think Mm -hmm. in a way that is very different than other war films that we get today, having it set up more like a domestic drama, I think would also work really well with Academy voters. What do you think?
1: I agree. I think this would be just as celebrated, if not more. I think something like cinematography today would probably be a Mm shoe-in. And then even art direction or production design now. Mm -hmm. But I think also today, we don't really see films like this, meaning critically acclaimed films that tackle PTSD, Mm -hmm. especially from a war perspective. Like we have films like Jacob's Ladder, but that's more of a horror film, which obviously the Academy isn't really going to turn to. So I think what Weiler crafted here was just really exquisite in the way of making this a number one box office hit, but also bringing in so many great conversations.
0: Absolutely. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
1: It would definitely be for director for Weiler. I think just great craftsmanship all around. You can see his touch at every corner of this movie. What would you give it? I would
0: do the same. Best director for Weiler, I think taking your own personal experience and turning it into something like this, that's all that you can hope for from a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and it's very vulnerable and like breaks new ground, I think, on the genre, which is very cool. So finally, let's move on to Ben-Hur, which was released in 1959. IMDb description here, after a Jewish prince is betrayed and sent into slavery by a Roman friend... He regains his freedom and comes back for revenge. This movie stars Charlton Heston, Jack Hawkins, Stephen Boyd, Hugh Griffith, Haya Harareet, Martha Scott, and Kathy O'Donnell. This movie won 11 Oscars. It won Best Picture, Director, Lead Actor for Heston, Supporting Actor for Griffith, Cinematography, Color, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Costume Design, Color, Sound, Film Editing, Effects, Special Effects, music, scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture. And this feat was only bested 40 years later with Titanic. It had one other nomination, Adapted Screenplay, which lost to Room at the Top. Before we do general reactions to how you felt about the movie, is this the longest movie you've ever seen?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And you know what? I didn't hate it. <laughs> I'm so, so shocked. So my whole thing about I... not liking long movies, that's debunked. Because this was great. Wow. I really like this. I'm, I'm so
0: shocked, actually. Because when I started this movie and there was an overture, I was like, oh no, here we go. We have a tough situation ahead. But I'm glad that you liked it. I think there's a lot to like in the movie. So it's not my favorite mm-hmm. of the bunch, but I do like it a lot. I think it's mm-hmm. really successful in what it's trying to do. And it's such a grand epic. And I think today, mm-hmm. grand epics are so like cGI heavy and they turn into these like weird blockbusters. They're not like this. This is such a product of its time
1: in like the most annoying of ways, like they really don't make them like this anymore. And just yeah. the grandness of the sets, the score, the acting, everything is just top mm-hmm. notch. But I do have a note that's really funny. <laughs> I don't remember writing this down. But I go, how long is this overture?
0: <laughs> I When I watched this, I was like, I'm committed. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go Four make popcorn in, right now. Like... <laughs> I left my living room, went to my kitchen, made popcorn. Came back, and it was still going.
1: (laughs) It's like the entire score was being played.
0: Was this your first time watching it, like, all the way through? Had you seen parts of it before? Had you seen, like, anything?
1: I had seen this before, too. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't new, but like the best years of our lives, it had been a while.
0: So growing up, going to Catholic school, Ben-Hur was one of those movies that your teacher would try to put on in class we would have to watch it around Easter. Not every year, but I remember one year in particular when I was in seventh grade, our teacher played Ben-Hur and we loved this because it took wow. so many oh. class periods. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We didn't uh. have to do work for days because this movie took <laughs> so long to
1: watch. I mean, that's a full school week. Yeah. Of like 40-minute periods. Wow.
0: <laughs> it was great. And I just remember thinking Charlton Heston was like the best-looking man I'd ever seen. Oh my God. Specifically as Ben-Hur. It just like, it totally worked for me. hmm Not NRA president Charlton Heston. We're going to ignore <laughs> oh, his geez. personal life later in life and strictly talk about <laughs> him in Ben-Hur.
1: Yeah, I was fully committed to his acting. I really loved what he was giving.
0: I don't know. Part of me is like, is he a good actor? I kept thinking that because a lot of it is so physical. I watched these in chronological order, so I was just used to, I think, the Mm -hmm. acting in Miniver and in Best Years of Our Lives, and this is completely different. He has such a presence, and the performance is so physical in a way that I had kind of forgotten about.
1: And for listeners, if you haven't seen any or some of these movies, this is the only one of the three that's in color. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that like played a role in it for me, but I think also the colors are like really vibrant.
0: Mm -hmm. Everything is so beautiful and so magnificent. You feel like you're watching something Mm -hmm. important the whole time. So you pay more attention to it. And Mm -hmm. I think that as far as the story goes, so ultimately it is tied with the Bible, and it's tied with the story of Jesus. It goes mm-hmm. all the way from the Nativity story to the crucifixion, but that is kind of off to the side. It's not the center of the story. It kind of operates parallel to Ben Hur's right. story. And I like that because I think that it was probably, it's probably really confusing to some viewers if you don't know that story, but I don't think it has to be because. The story of Ben-Hur I think is more compelling actually. I think you can almost not get rid of the Jesus story alongside of it, but Mm -hmm. I like the way that the character almost functions in a way where you think to yourself, oh are you actually the savior of these people? Like not Jesus, right? Is it Ben-Hur? Because he goes through really similar things in his story, so I like that. I like how it functions. And one thing that I thought was really interesting reading about this movie was that... And I noticed this when it started playing was that usually when an MGM movie starts, Leo the lion mm-hmm. has this really loud roar in here. It's silent because MGM, they got permission to make him silent because they thought it would create the wrong mood for how sensitive and sacred the nativity scene was. So Weiler mm-hmm. specifically asked for permission to do that. And I think that's just another like really interesting detail that he put in and an example of how he's a perfectionist and always like thinking about those little things and how they can mm-hmm. affect the tone of his movie.
1: That's really fascinating. And I had forgotten that the story of Jesus was a part of this story. But I think opening on that nativity scene, his birth, the Jerusalem set was a 10 square block. Even the, the miniature sets, which some of them were used in the boat sequence where they're at war and then also in the part of this sequence also I think uses a miniature set and just everything is really well designed.
0: Yeah and there were 300 sets that were built that took five years to research and 14 months of labor to complete. Insane. I didn't realize that it was a 1925 silent film. Now I kind of want to watch that just to Mm -hmm. see like how different it was and Mm -hmm. how they were inspired by that. But yeah, I just, I think every little detail about this film, you know, how much like it took to make this movie, how expensive it was, how much went into it. And it was by the time shooting began, they had spent $15.1 million That was the costliest film ever at the time. But they made their money back. But if you think about it today, that would have been about $135 million.
1: I feel like that's somewhat standard now, Mm -hmm. maybe. But I think for MGM at the time, it really put them on the line of, you know, if this flops, we could go into bankruptcy. So it was a much, much bigger gamble. And about the original Ben-Hur... What's interesting is that William Wyler worked on that film as well.
0: I love that. He was one of the assistant directors, and he really didn't want to do it at first. He didn't want to make this movie. He thought it was like kind of basic and simple, and this is a very mm-hmm. different movie for him. If you think about like the two that we have talked about before were great companion pieces, this is a big pivot for him. It's crazy when you think about how successful it was, not just at the box office and at the Oscars, but how it works as a film. It's so well done.
1: Yeah, this production wasn't easy. I mean, it, everything came together very well. But you saying that Wyler didn't want to do it, Charlton Heston didn't want to do it either, because he was just in the Ten Commandments. And he didn't, one, want to play a similar role. But two, he didn't want to work with 40 Take Weiler, And there was a funny little piece of trivia about how I think later on in the movie, after Ben-Hur returns, he comes into this room and he did like eight takes. Weiler wasn't saying anything. So Haston was like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? Like, what should I do differently? And he was like, I liked how you kicked the pot in the first shot because it added sound to the scene. And so hearing things like that about Weiler's precision... I think that would infuriate me too but there were definitely hardships along the way along with the screenplay which had like 40 different rewrites
0: and with hundreds of pages
1: <laughs> yeah it had names attached like Gore Vidal Christopher Fry and Maxwell Anderson apart from Carl Thunberg who is the credited screenwriter for the movie
0: that story reminds me actually a lot of David Fincher, and I think that
1: yes, yes, like
0: Weiler reminds me of like a David Fincher who gets emotions. Like, I think that Fincher's films are much colder, and like Weiler has so much precision, but also has so much heart and emotion, which mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people will see. A lot of directors with both of those things working at once. Maybe he's more like Greta Gerwig. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So I did have a fun fact about the actors that I thought was funny. So a lot of actors were also considered for this role over Charlton Heston, including Marlon Brando. And my favorite was that Paul Newman turned it down because he didn't think that he had the legs for a tunic. I beg <laughs> to differ. That, I don't believe that.
1: <laughs> and then Kirk Douglas turned down the role of Masala because he wanted to play Judah, but Charlton Heston had already been cast... So Kirk Douglas went on to lead in Spartacus and that was supposed to actually compete with Ben-Hur a little bit because that came out the next year.
0: I think, so we've talked a lot about like how grand everything was. I think let's just get into like our favorite scenes and like what worked for us there.
1: Kind of reminding me of the opening shot of Mrs. Miniver of the town. We have really wide establishing shots of the city and Mm -hmm. there are thousands of people in these shots. Like this is what isn't done today. Mm -hmm. Throughout the entire movie, 50,000 extras were used and there were 350 speaking roles. Like that is unheard of. It's so
0: much, (laughs) it really is. It's just like, how did this happen? If I'm thinking of the movie sets I would have liked to have been on, like if I could go back in time, like this would definitely be one, just Mm -hmm. to see it all happen.
1: The rowing sequence inside the boat, I think Mm -hmm. that was fantastic. You know, having at least a few hundred people rowing and rowing faster and faster and faster. The coordination of everything, I think, is what I'm so fascinated by. So obviously, it's almost four hours. There's an intermission. (laughs) So we're two hours and 20 minutes in. And right before the intermission, I think the climax, all of the action that's happening is so intense. Judah just comes home. He finds Esther at their estate where they used to live that's now abandoned. The mom and sister are lepers.
0: I think leper is the most used word in this movie, besides Judah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then they tell Esther to lie about seeing them because they feel Mm -hmm. so ugly and used after years of sitting in this prison. So Esther tells Judah that they're dead and then Judah runs off to probably kill Masala. So like so much is happening and Mm -hmm. then it cuts and I was like, wow, this is really what I wanted.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great filmmaking and the way that it's set up And again, like structured around that, building that intensity. And then, Mm. you know, when we're back from the intermission, he doesn't really let off of it. It picks up at a really good point. And I I think that the relationship between Judah and Masala is very compelling. I sensed a lot of queer undertones between them, which I don't know if that was intentional at the time.
1: So Gorvidal's version of the script it was very overtly homosexual between Masala and Ben Hur. So they obviously like wrote over that. But I think at some level, I don't know where I read this, but you can see it in Masala, especially. Yeah. So that's funny that you saw that and didn't know that fact.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> because I just like every time they were just together, the two of them are just speaking. I was like, am I watching Call Me By Your Name? Like, what? <laughs> I just thought like something's gonna happen between these guys. Like is this yeah. <laughs> the, is this the early Benedetta? Like what's going on here? I need to know. <laughs> oh my god. And that's funny too, because it's the only Hollywood film to make the Vatican approved film list in the category yeah, of religion.
1: Which is wild.
0: But so that makes me love it even more that it had these undertones written in on purpose.
1: How did you feel about them never showing Jesus' face?
0: I kind of liked that. I like that they kept it a mystery because it's like everybody knows who that is, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone knew this story. It was written in the 1800s, but I mean, obviously the Bible's even older than that. So I don't think it was needed. I thought it was actually a good detail to just show Judah's face reacting, mm-hmm. you know, especially yeah. in the end scene and right. near the beginning. I think that, that was a that was a nice detail. I liked that.
1: There is a shot, though... When Punch's Pilot is condemning him, the camera is behind Punch's Pilot, and you could potentially see Jesus' face, but it's, like, scratched out in black. Did you notice that?
0: No, I did not notice that. It
1: was really a four-hour movie. Like...
0: <laughs> the details are slipping away.
1: Well, that was just so odd to me because that was the one time his face would have been shown, but they, mm-hmm. like, scratched it out.
0: Hmm. I don't
1: know. Listeners, if you know what I'm talking about...
0: Yeah, please help. Is this
1: real? Am I crazy? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did you watch a bad version? We need to know. (laughs)
1: Maybe. (laughs) As I was watching, I was like, what if Wyler had tarantino the ending and had not through death and crucifixion, but had he saved the mother and sister, and then he wouldn't have been crucified? Wow. Like, I feel like that's something very Tarantino.
0: I mean, I don't that would be crazy. I think that that would be like to change that story up. I don't think it would be approved know, by the yeah. Vatican anymore, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think it would be, that would be a really unique way to do it because at some point though, I still think like, is the message here that it wasn't Jesus that it's like Ben, her is the one who's like saving everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't
0: know. That's just kind of my reading on it. But yeah, that would have been interesting. I like that idea. So let's get into the Chariot Race, which is the biggest sequence in Ben-Hur. Biggest Mm -hmm. as in like most notorious, best, most expensive, most impressive, all of that, I think. (laughs) I think what I find fascinating about it also is there's a lot of mythology around this. Like there are stories that people died while making this, but those have been somewhat debunked. There are various amounts, like costs that have gone around of like how much this cost, how many people were used, and... Mm-hmm. there's a level of mystery there. And I, I mm-hmm. love that because this feels so mysterious and it feels like it's not sometimes like, it's not something that we can understand. And I like that about it, that it's just so grand and it really is so spectacular. I think it's one of the best action sequences I've ever seen on film. I was, you know, at this point too, we're hours into this movie and I was like riveted. I was like, my phone needs to be away from me. Like I'm fully watching this, no distractions.
1: It was an event so big, it had its own team behind it. It was staged by Andrew Martin and Yakima Kanut. And then it was directed by David Lean and the Chariot race specifically required 15,000 extras. And they used a set on the Cinecitta Studios lot outside of Rome which was 18 acres. So this was a massive undertaking at every level.
0: And this really was a global production. They brought in tons of white sand from Mexico and setting up this track was really intense. They had to make sure that it could support the weight of the chariots, be really smooth so that the horses could be safe when they ran over and over again during training and during filming. They built 18 Roman chariots And both of the actors, like Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd, so our main actors here who play Judah, obviously, and then Masala, they had to spend many hours training to learn how to ride these chariots. And it was much easier, Mm -hmm. actually, for Charlton Heston because he was a really good horseback rider, but it took a lot longer for Boyd because he didn't have any experience. So for most of it, they actually didn't even use stun doubles. They wanted to do the chariot ride scenes themselves. They only use stunt doubles in the really, really hazardous scenes. So if you've seen the movie, you can imagine, I'm sure, what those are. But this sequence in particular was absolutely wild to me, how violent it was, how they really just, they film it all almost like it's in real time.
1: And I think part of why it looked so realistic in so real time is that They decided to have a camera on its own chariot or car during the race, so it was moving along with the other chariots on the track. And initially, Weiler had chosen all of the camera angles to use, and then he relayed all of that information to David Lean. So I think as a team and the way they crafted this, we get wide shots of the arena, we get really intimate close-ups, we get to see that spike on the wheel and that raises our intensity so much I can't imagine how they film that and like yeah. people agree to be like okay yes I'm gonna do this and I know I'm gonna fall off this chariot and be stampeded by horses like that is terrifying
0: yeah I think the way that they shoot it there's so much pageantry to it and like so many different types of shots and also Sergio Leone helped oh wow so it was definitely like a big team wow. effort with some great names attached to it
1: and this is kind of a side note to the chariot race but the sheik beforehand makes a bet that judah's gonna win so he puts a bet four to one odds on a thousand talents and you're watching this like that means nothing to me but apparently that's the modern day equivalent of 660 million dollars
0: oh my god which is I didn't know what that meant when I was watching. I was like, they're just gambling.
1: Imagine. Like, this is Uncut Mm -hmm. Gems level.
0: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'm glad that it worked out for them.
1: (laughs) So then after this race, things start to conclude. Judah goes and sees Masala after he's been stampeded. And then he goes to see his mom, even against Esther's wishes. And then later on, we get to see the crucifixion of Christ. And I think that scene is Mm -hmm. really well done, too. The sound really impressed me from after he's on the cross, and there's this huge storm that happens.
0: I really like the parallel structure, too, when we think about the beginning when Judah is a slave and Jesus offers him water, and then at the end... It changes to be mm-hmm. like Judah yeah. offering him water. I really like that parallel. I mean, it's a little mm-hmm. cheesy, but it works. And I'm sure audiences <laughs> yeah. at the time were like, "Oh my I god, feel the that's same so way. great!" <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I don't know how he either doesn't realize who that is, or in that moment it comes to him that this is the man that saved him when he was in shackles as well. So I think it's interesting to see it from judah's perspective too that this is kind of a nobody and i think another thing at the end that really hit me that seemed a little cheesy and that i should have gotten it is when esther goes it was as though you have become masala and i was like oh wow okay yes
0: again the weiler knows how to you know pack that emotional punch into those endings and to make you feel something and that is i think a thread that we see mm-hmm. throughout oscar history where Movies that make viewers like, feel, they win. That's always what people end up voting for and is part of the mm-hmm. reason, I think, why he has so many Oscars. And speaking of Oscars, this is the first of three films to have won 11 Academy Awards, including the Best Picture Oscar. The second was Titanic in 1997, and the third was The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003. And several of the categories that Titanic and Lord of the Rings Return of the King won didn't exist in Ben-Hur's day. So you never know. Ben-Hur could have won more. But it's also the first film to win Mm -hmm. 10 Oscars in competitive categories, with Gone with the Wind having won eight competitive Oscars and two special Oscars.
1: And still as of today, Ben-Hur is the last MGM film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture
0: will House of Gucci be next? (laughs) 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 Or Soggy Bottom?
1: Or No Time to Die.
0: Oh my god. So speaking of Ben-Hur in the Oscars, who or what, if anything, was snubbed?
1: So when I looked up to see who Hugh Griffith was, it kind of surprised me that he was the sheik, Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. none of the other supporting men were nominated, including Stephen Boyd as Masala, and then even Jack Hawkins as Quintus Arius, who is the guy during the boat sequence who was like, row faster, row faster. Mm -hmm. So even for them, I mean, I do like a lot of their nominations and wins. I think for such a big movie, it shocked me to read that the one they didn't win was screenplay.
0: This feels right to me. I think the screenplay is the weakest component of the movie. But sometimes when you think about big movies, which I totally get what you're saying of why didn't it win this, because... Usually screenplay is a category that's kind of carried along with the big movie that wins. Right. So it is kind of odd in that way, I think. I really don't think there were any snubs. I feel like 11 Oscars is plenty.
1: I mean, it is. It's the most ever. So
0: (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I'm okay with that.
1: And then, how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie?
0: So, I was thinking a lot about Gladiator actually when I watched this and how Gladiator was a very, very popular movie and ended up winning Best mm-hmm. Picture, ended up winning Best Actor. I think that's probably the closest thing I can think of to Ben Hur, but that was 20 years ago at this point. If these movies come out today, I feel like they're not really Oscar fair, they're usually like franchise. Blockbusters, it's not like mm-hmm. its own standalone epic. Ben Hur technically was a property, like you could buy Ben Hur merchandise, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. But I think it depends who the director is. If it was like a prestige period drama epic, I think it would still do really well, mm-hmm. especially in below the line categories. What about you?
1: I think to that point, like I said earlier, they're not made like this mm-hmm. today. Tell me a movie where there have been 50,000 extras. Well, it's all
0: CG now. Like that is CGI today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So even mentioning the newest Ben-Hur that was made in 2016, (laughs) it flopped really hard. (laughs) And I can only imagine, no, I didn't see it, but I can't imagine any recreation of that is going to do it justice.
0: And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
1: It would be for art direction for sure. Just the creation of all of these sets, the amount of sets, I think there was such a keen eye place to recreating the settings and specifically Jerusalem. That is what brought me into this world and kept me fascinated for almost four hours. (laughs) What would you give it?
0: I would give William Wyler Best Director again. I know this is boring. It's the same one I did last time, but I feel like for him to put this all together is so impressive, especially because it's so different from anything else that he'd made. And just Mm -hmm. to be the supervisor of all of this, this grand epic film that has, you know, maybe the most iconic action scene ever that has won so many Oscars and just was, you know, broke box office records and still like feels just like one of those, like you said, a movie they just don't make anymore. We have to give him that credit.
1: So now for some listener questions. Our first one comes from Owen Daly. They asked, given that William Wyler holds the record for a director who directed the most acting nominations, which is 36, what are your favorite of the performances nominated in each category? Also, what are some performances he directed that you wish were nominated?
0: So for leads here, I will say for Best Actress, my favorite is definitely Olivia de Havilland in The Heiress. That one's probably in my top five wins of all time in the category. So Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen The Heiress, definitely watch it. It's amazing. And then for actor, I'm going with Laurence Olivier for Wuthering Heights. I remember seeing him as Heathcliff and just being like blown away by him. Just the way that he looked in that role, his performance. I think I would pick him there.
1: I'm actually really interested to watch this. I know, like, I had read this in...
0: High school, probably.
1: Yeah, like Honors English and It's the Book to Hate. I liked it. No,
0: I love it.
1: But I think I've always been deterred by these old period dramas of this adaptation. But I think now that I know that William Wyler directed it, I am more inclined to watch it. And I know this is bad, but I think the only other film I've seen from him is Roman Holiday. So I think saying my answer is Audrey Hepburn is kind of a cop-out. But I think doing all this research will make me go watch more. So I'm sorry not as helpful for these answers.
0: That's all right. Roman Holiday is so good, though. I I do love that one. And that's kind of my go-to recommendation for people who are trying to get into classic Hollywood films. Roman Mm -hmm. Holiday is always one of my first recommendations because I feel like anyone can really get into it. Which is a good segue. I think performances he directed that I wish were nominated... I think we talked a lot about this with the best years of our lives, especially for me, Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright. I really wish they were nominated I think additionally, I love Gregory Peck in Roman Holiday. He was mm-hmm. one of the men that I remember seeing when I was like in what third or fourth grade <laughs> watching this and being like, "Who is that? That is the most handsome man I've ever seen and I think he works really well with Audrey Hepburn in that movie. So I would say that and Herbert Marshall in Little Foxes, another good one that I think he should have been nominated. So spoiler to what we're doing later in the year, we will be covering the Little Foxes in one of our Oscar rewinds later in the year for an anniversary episode, because that was nominated with the Maltese Falcon and Citizen Kane. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll like it. It has a good, meaty, Betty Davis performance.
1: I think of all of Weiler's films, I'm most intrigued to see that one. No idea why, but we get more Teresa Wright, too. So I'm in.
0: Yeah, there you go. So our next question we have is from James at allaboutoscar.net. Of the Best Picture nominees that he didn't win, Roman Holiday, Little Foxes, etc., which is your favorite, and which do you think should have won their respective year?
1: how do you feel about Detective Story?
0: I actually haven't seen Detective Story. That's on my to watch list. I have not seen that one.
1: That's another one that I'm intrigued by. Again, I'm going to turn this over to you. Okay.
0: Roman Holiday is my favorite that didn't win. I will say that. And I think though, of the ones where I can make the best case for what should have won, I would pick the heiress over all the Kingsmen. All the Kingsmen... I'm not that into you, You especially. I think, yeah, stay away from it. But I think you might like the heiress.
1: (laughs) And then our third question by The Futurist. After watching these films or any of his other works, do you feel he had a directing style or a recurring thematic thread in his work?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. We talked a little bit about this throughout, but I think his stories really observe the characters and he pays great attention to his actors. And I think that I like that his movies are just really beautiful and moving, and they pay attention mm-hmm. to the relationships that the characters have. And one thing I noticed on this group of watches, I think in particular, Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben-Hur. His stories are all about pride in some way. So whether that's, you know, mm-hmm. a national pride, if you're going into war or, or coming out of war and what that looks like. And then in the case of Ben-Hur, too, what pride looks like in this heroic tale. So I think that was something I saw as a, a thread connecting them this time. Two of his stories today that we talked about focused a lot on men, but some of his other stories have really strong, like Mrs. Miniver, female characters in them, and he does let his actresses have a lot of great material to work with, and I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about him. What about you?
1: It really shows that he gives great focus to every aspect of his movies. I agree on how much emphasis he places on his actors and their stories, even though he may be hard on them. I think. Throughout the experiences, they say that they learn a lot, too. So I think what we see on screen is just a part of what is going on behind the scenes, too. And I like the way the camera frames the action. He has a lot of two shots, a lot of longer takes instead of cutting back and forth. I mean, he does both, but it captures dialogue and the relationships in a different way that maybe more movies do today. And I think you get to see more of what feels like more genuine reactions. And like I've said throughout, I like how he creates these grand sets that have so many components to them. There are a lot of moving parts, and I think that really catches the eye, too.
0: I am just so happy that you love these movies. It's just like, (laughs) as we go back in time and talk about classic Hollywood... I've always like worried that the acting will be too much or the length will be too much, but I'm so glad <laughs> that you liked these because this is very promising for covering classic Hollywood because I love this time period. I love talking about it with you. And I'm excited that you found a new director that you really like. That's great.
1: Yes. So that's a good segue to mentioning what we'll be doing next time on Oscar Wilde. There's a movie that I prepped and watched already, and I think is just very different to what Weiler has done with his <laughs> oh, movies. No. So we'll be recapping the Cannes Film Festival, what's been going on, your experience, you know, all the movies that you saw, all of your reactions, mm-hmm. emotions. So I'm excited to hear about all of that. And then along with that, we'll be discussing the two Palme d'Or winners that went on to win the Best Picture Oscar. So that's Marty from 1955 and our beloved Parasite from 2020.
0: I'm so excited to give a recap of my experience at Cannes. It was truly wonderful. I loved it so much. And to talk about those movies, and I think by then we'll also know who won the Palm Door this year, and will be able to talk about maybe some Oscar potential coming out of the festival and what mm-hmm. the buzz is. But I'm very excited to actually watch Marty for the first time and, of course, to talk about Parasite, too. Finally. Yeah, finally. True. <laughs> if you want to watch any of the movies that we talked about today, all three of them are available to rent on iTunes, Amazon Prime.
1: And then also The Best Years of Our Lives is on Canopy as well.
0: Oh, it is?
1: just that one that's exciting
0: i have the blu-ray so i watched that but (laughs) (laughs) well thanks everyone for listening we will see you next time
1: thanks everyone we'll see you next week